we have been in the middle of a study called He Is, and the idea for, for this summer was to, was to look into the Bible, and every time one of the New Testament authors said, He Is, about Jesus, we were going to stop and take a look at that. Uh, because there's a lot of folks who, who, who like to have a, a concept of who Jesus is, and, and in the world you oftentimes hear people arguing over this is Jesus, or that is Jesus, or this is who Jesus is, but these were the people that knew Jesus firsthand. These were the folks who walked and talked with Jesus, and these were the folks that after his death said all the time he is in the present, like he was still alive, like he was resurrected from the dead. See, they'd seen him rise from the dead, so they weren't saying he was. They were saying he is. And they were saying some pretty remarkable things. So in week one, we talked about Jesus being the cornerstone. Uh, in week two, we talked about Jesus' ability to save completely uh, those who call upon his name. And last week, we talked about Jesus being the mediator of a better covenant, a covenant where we uh, live in this personal relationship with God that's just so blessed. So uh, if you're newer to church and you were looking around this morning, you saw people who were all excited about being in church, that's because of that new covenant. They, they have a personal relationship with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at another he is statement today. So this is what I'm going to have you do. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 59. Now for those of you who know your Bible, you know Jesus hadn't been born yet. So you're like, how's this going to be his? We're going to go back there. Okay. So Isaiah chapter 59 Put your little, your little bookmark in there, okay, in Isaiah chapter 59, and then we're going to go to the he is statement that's found in Acts chapter 10. So put your bookmark in about halfway through the message this morning. We're going to go back to Isaiah 59 to get some context, but then, then turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. You know, one of my roles here as pastor is to, is to do some counseling. I'm not a clinician, but I'll, I'll, I'll counsel people on spiritual matters and there was a gentleman who came to my office recently, and he, and he sat down, and he looked at me, and he said something I'd never heard before. He says, oh, it's like getting called to the principal's office. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I am not that severe. Uh, sorry to any of you principals, but this is not what we're here to do today is, is, is to call you to the principal's office. But I thought, well, maybe he's been bad, and he knows it. But I, I was... I was thinking back to a time that I got called to the principal's office, and it made me think about what we're talking about today. I remember being a senior in high school, and, and I wasn't a kid that got called to the principal's office a lot, but when, you know, when you're a senior, you're particularly obnoxious, and I, I was obnoxious in my senior year. I did enough to get called to the principal's office a couple of different times, and, but, but, but one day, I saw that little intercom light up, and somebody said, you know, right in the middle of my class, ah, Mrs. So-and-so, would you send Mr. Skiffstad to Mr. Holland's office? Now, Mr. Holland was the head principal, not some unit principal. He was the big honcho. And I remember thinking, I don't know what he's calling me in for, but there's any number of offenses that I could be in trouble for right now. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, this is awful. What have I done to get called into the head principal's office? I'd been called to the unit principal a number of times senior year, but never the head principal's office. And I remember walking down from the third floor to the first floor thinking my life was about to end. I mean, the principal's office is a horribly scary thing. That is the place of judgment and justice, right, within a school. And not just judgment and justice on the unit level, on the whole level. I was getting called to the big boss's office. So I, I make my way down there, and I, my, my, I was sweating, and, and, and I'm, I'm nervous. And, and you know how you feel when justice is about to be done upon you. So I, I, I got to his office, and I walked across the threshold. He says, ah, Mr. Skiffstad. He said, no need to sit down. If I could have thrown up in that moment on his floor, I would have. No need to sit down. You're not even going to discuss what I did. You're just going to render judgment. <laughs> I was horrified. 
He looks at me and he says, a local business is opening this week and they called me and asked if I had anybody who'd like to sing the national anthem. You want to? I was able to wipe my sweat away and the tear that was forming did not fall because the, the moment of judgment and justice for whatever I had done wrong was actually met with a reward. I said, do I get to miss school for that? He said, yes. I said, of course I'll do it. It was awesome. And every time I walk in Sam's Club today, I'm like, kids, I inaugurated this place. Yeah, let's go get a free sample. Well, anyhow, I tell you, there, there's times when you are brought before the judge that, that you actually get better than you deserve. And I, I got better than I deserved when I walked into Principal Holland's office that day. In fact, I walked in there thinking that he was going to call me on the carpet for some stupid thing that I had done to try to get laughs. And instead, I was given a reward when I stood before the arbiter of justice. You know, we're going to look at a passage today when the Apostle Peter is going to be preaching the gospel to the very first group of non-Jewish people to accept Jesus Christ as Lord. The, 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 the biblical way of calling these folks is the household of Cornelius. Cornelius actually was a Roman soldier. And Peter felt called in a vision to go and preach to this group of Gentiles, non-Jews, and he's going to tell them all about Jesus and what Jesus has done. It's a remarkable point in Christian history. Peter's going to be preaching a sermon to them, and we're not going to look to the whole sermon today that he's preaching to Cornelius and his household. We're going to look to the he is statement, because the he is statement is an important statement. It's a good and important message. And the he is statement, believe it or not, is about judgment, about getting called on the carpet, being called to the principal's office, being called before the judge. It's a good and important message, and it's a message that Peter felt compelled to share with folks who would become believers in Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, look down at Acts 10.42, and we'll take a look at our he is statement for the day. Peter is wrapping up his sermon to Cornelius' household, and he says this to them. He commanded us to preach. He, being Jesus, commanded us, his disciples, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as the judge of the living and the dead. He is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. Now, now, if I was preaching the gospel message to a bunch of newbies, I don't know that I would appeal to judgment. I mean, you've seen people appealing to judgment in the way that they preach, and it's not always the prettiest thing. So, so the question I want to ask to start this morning is, judgment, why go there? Why can't he just say, Jesus died for our sins, he resurrected from the dead, and because of all of that, he can save you for eternity? But he, he wants to make it very clear to the household of Cornelius, hey, listen, folks, Jesus is the one ordained, set apart specifically by God the Father as the one who is going to judge the living and the dead. Now, I, I don't know, and maybe one of the old hymns has it. We might have to go back to Charles Wesley in the 1800s to find a, a church song about Jesus being our judge. Because it's not a very, it's not a very a pretty picture to think about standing before God in the form of Jesus Christ and going, all right, let's talk about what I did. But this is what Jesus has told his disciples to tell the world. I am the one ordained to judge the world. So, so why is that? Well, 
Peter does it, one, because Jesus tells him to. Two, the, the Bible is remarkably consistent about there's going to be a day of judgment. A day when history is put to an end by the one who started history in one moment. God is going to, to end history in the same way he began history. He is going to end time as we know it. He is going to close this age and bring about the age to come. And the event that's going to take place to usher one age into the next is the living and the dead, those who have gone before and those who are still alive, standing before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, it was called the Day of Judgment or the Day of the Lord. And, and, and by the time they got into the minds of the people, sometimes they just called it the day. Like, you know judgment is coming. And, and, and my personal favorite, the one that just makes you want to sweat and throw up, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, that's, what, that's what's coming. But the New Testament makes an interesting turn. And, and the interesting turn is this idea that, that God the Father is not going to sit in judgment. Jesus is. This is a heartening thought. This is an important thought that Jesus is going to sit in judgment to us. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, calls it the judgment seat of Christ. Now you say, okay, so, so Jesus is going to judge us, but th that, that, that might only be there in, in, in two parts of the New Testament. Au contraire, mon frere. The New Testament talks about the judgment seat of Christ in Matthew, in Luke, in John, in Romans, in 2 Corinthians, in the book of Acts as we've seen, in Ephesians, in Philippians, in Colossians, in 1 Thessalonians. It talks about it in Hebrews, Jude, and Revelation. These are all books that talk about Jesus being our judge. The New Testament makes it a major part of the gospel. Why is that? Well, well the reason Peter appeals to judgment and the reason that Jesus proclaimed that, that, that it be preached is simple. People need to know that at the end of time, they're going to stand before God in Christ. People need to know that. Peter felt compelled to share it with the first group of Gentile Christians, that Jesus is going to, to sit on the judgment seat of history, and that all people are going to stand before Jesus and give an account of how they lived their lives. Now, you saw in the title this morning on your bulletin that, that I'm going to tell you the good news about judgment now. Would you like to hear it? There's some good news about judgment. I want to share with you what the good news about judgment is and the reason that it's not such a dire message as one might think. The first reason that, that, that judgment is actually good news is because we as human beings have been longing for justice and judgment for a long time. In fact, it's a core longing in our spirit to want to see justice done. We want fairness. We want reciprocity. We want equality. We want protection. That is part of what makes us human. We want things to be made right. And nobody has to teach us to desire this. I say all the time, you don't have to teach a child how to sin. They know how to be selfish. They, know, they, know how to, they figure out how to lie without anybody ever teaching them how to lie. You don't have to teach a child to do this. You also don't have to teach a child to desire justice, to desire justice from a higher authority. Now, I have four kids. Number five's coming this summer. And I know when I hear this, Daddy, that one thing is happening. No, no one's hurt. No one's injured. No one really needs me. What is happening is someone has wronged somebody. And when they say, Daddy, 
What they want is a judge. They want somebody to, to judge between them and decide who was wrong and who was right and who gets what and who doesn't. And they appeal to judgment all the time. I did not know that I would be judge slash referee as a father as much as I am, but here I am. Kids appeal to this all the time. Mommy, Daddy, we need you to do this. We need you to, we need you to figure it out. We need you to tell us who's right and who's wrong and, and, and who gets what and who doesn't. Kids appeal to judgment without ever being taught to appeal to judgment. They appeal to a higher authority to decide what is right and what is wrong and what is fair and what is not. Because most of the time when I look at them and say, go figure it out on your own, it does not work. I mean, like maybe one out of 10, one out of 15, it works. Go, go figure it out. You guys be fair to one another. Skedaddle. It doesn't work. They come back to me and, and the same wrong and the same problem and the same, same thing has happened again. So, so just because a judgment has been rendered or just because a judgment has been suspended doesn't mean that, that the problem is over. In fact, many times it comes back again and again and again and again because my kids are sinful. My kids are sinners. So are yours. <laughs> I'm leaving that church. Anyhow, kids are sinners, but they also want fairness. They also want judgment. The problem is I'm not a righteous judge. I don't always judge rightly. Sometimes I, 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 I decide this is going to happen and this is going to happen, and then like 15 minutes later, my wife will look at me and goes, you know this happened. I said, I didn't know that. I wouldn't have decided what I did if I'd known that. I'm not omniscient. Who knew? I, I don't have it all together. And you know what? I love all my children the same. I remember my grandma saying, I love all my grandkids the same. And my mom saying, I love all my children the same. But you don't always like them all the same. <laughs> Sometimes they can be pretty obnoxious, can't they? And you want to rule in favor of the non-obnoxious child, Right? But that's a bias. That doesn't matter. Just because that one's obnoxious doesn't mean that that one's not right. I'm biased, and I know it. I'm not a righteous judge. And we find out as we go through life that all the people we appeal to for, for judgment aren't always righteous. You know, teachers sometimes have favorites. I mean, you ever appeal to a teacher that didn't do right by you but did right by another student? I'm sorry, teachers. You, you, you have a calling. God bless you. I spent one night in the fours and fives, and that was it. But, but not every teacher is unbiased. Certainly not every principal is unbiased, but these are the people we look to within the school setting to do right and, and, and judge equality and fairness, but they don't know everything. They don't know everything that's transpired. They can't always make a wise judgment. Not every boss is just. Some bosses have favorites. Some bosses don't judge rightly. So you appeal to them for justice and fairness and equality when you've been wronged and nothing happens for whatever hang-up that boss has. And on the grander scale, we have a government, we have officers and we have judges and we have justices of the Supreme Court. I love that our Supreme Court judges are called justices. That they're gonna, they're gonna ultimately say what is just in the land. But they're not unbiased. They're not without flaw. They're not omniscient. There's no way that they can always render the correct judgment. 
but it speaks to something even greater. Not only do we have no judges who are worthy ultimately to always render justice, but we have a problem on the front end. And the front end problem is the need for judges and justices as it is. And the need for judges and justices as it is is because as long as human beings have been around, someone is being wronged and someone is doing the wronging. Otherwise, we would never need to appeal to judgment. We would never need a judge. But as long as human beings have been around, someone is being wronged and someone is doing the wronging. And you might say, I know, Pastor Matt, that's the story of my life. As long as I've been around, someone's been wronging me. Good luck. Because as long as you've been around, you've also been wronging others. You're a sinner too. You're a sinner too. I mentioned a moment ago, I got four kids, I have a wife. You know what, I've wronged all of them. And I don't even know all the ways in which even at this stage of their little lives that I have wounded them for my kids. See, see, see we all are on, are on the, 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 the scale of wounding. We have been wounded, but we've also done some pretty good wounding ourselves. Even the most righteous among us, the, the best men and women I've ever known have hurt people. Can you imagine? But it's true. I told you one of my roles here as a spiritual counselor, I have people in my office all the time with wounds from dad, wounds from mom, wounds from spouse, wounds from siblings, wounds from work, wounds from neighbors, constantly. But many times as they're describing for me the stories of their lives, I see ways in which they have wounded and wronged others, and, and depending on who they are, they may or may not be receptive to what I'm about to share with them. See, that's the ultimate problem. That's why we need a judge. We have been longing for judgment as long as we've been alive for those who have wronged us. But the truth is, folks, we also need judgment and justice because we have been ones who have wronged others. Someone has got to call that into account. The greatest enemy of humans is sin because we're warped and we're not as selfless as un and unbiased as we'd like to believe. Now, if God were to let all of this go, if he were to hear all the cries for Father, 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 arbitrate between us, judge between us, make things right, and done nothing, he would not be a very good God. He can't let all those cries for justice go unheard. And here's some more good news about judgment. God wants justice too. God wants things to be made right too. But God had a problem. Not in himself, one that we created. God had a problem. And the problem was this. If God was to render justice without having sent Jesus Christ, all of us would have been condemned. None of us would have made heaven. Nobody was perfect. Nobody was pure and clean to the level that they needed to be to stand in God's presence. Everybody would have been stamped with a guilty verdict. And so God did something about it. He wanted justice and he had to answer all the cries for justice. 
But before he swept away humanity and all our sinful savagery, he did something to make sure that we would not all be condemned. Turn in your Bibles, if you have Mark, to Isaiah chapter 59. It's going to play into the last two scriptures that we read today. God sees the problem of injustice, and he wants to do something about it. We're going to be reading verses 14 through 17, and then we're going to uh, 16, and then go up to verse 20. This is what the prophet Isaiah says towards the close of the Old Testament scriptures. He says, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. Truth has been humbled in the public square, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Now catch this. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So his own right arm brought him salvation and his own righteousness upheld him. And verse 20, so a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression, declares the Lord. You see, the Lord sees the problem. He hears the cry of mommy and daddy, teacher, officer, judge. He hears the cry. He sees the injustice. But he realizes that there is no one to stem the tide of injustice in this world. There is certainly no one to intercede on behalf of humanity when justice will be done. And so he says, by my own right arm, that's my left arm, by my own right arm, (laughs) right to you, left to me, should just let it go, by my own right arm and by my own righteousness, I'm going to do something about it. I do not want to sweep away all of humanity in judgment. I want them to live with me eternally. Therefore, someone has to pay their price. Someone has to redeem them. You see, a redeemer is someone that pays the price for someone else's debt. Jesus took on the role that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 59 by coming to earth, by living a righteous, pure, and holy life, and then dying as a sacrifice for sin for all of humanity. He stood in your place, and he stood in my place. And then after having died, because he had no sin, he was raised from the dead. He is the only one who can stand as judge. But because of what he did, he is the only one who can be our redeemer. He's the only one that can pay the price of humanity for the sins that they have done. He's the only one that has taken the retribution of God upon himself. The Bible says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God knew that our righteousness was never enough to to keep us from being condemned, when we stood before him, he knew that we were all going to be swept away by his righteous judgment. 
though he said, I have a plan. I will take my righteousness and I will bestow it upon them. I will do it in the form of my son Jesus who will redeem them by taking their punishment and then becoming their judge. You see, this is the hope and the good news of judgment. Our judge is also our redeemer. Our judge has already paid the penalty for our sins. Look back to Acts chapter 10. Look at the very next verse, verse 43. All the prophets testify, including Isaiah chapter 59, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You see, what went on in eternity is this. Jesus died on behalf of our sins so that when we stand before God in eternity, we can say, yes, I am a sinful man and woman or woman. Yes, I have done wrong. Yes, I have been wrong. Yes, justice should be done upon me, but I receive the free gift of redemption that Jesus has bought for me. That's what happens when we stand before the judge. We get to claim Jesus. We get to claim that our sins have already been forgiven because when somebody comes to Christ, the verdict is already given in their trial. When you come to Jesus Christ, the verdict is given in advance of your trial. You are clean, set free, forgiven. So that when we stand before Christ, we're not going to do so in fear or, in, or, 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 or worry. It's going to be something completely different. Look at Hebrews. It says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin again, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You're waiting to be judged. Eagerly. You're waiting to stand before the judgment seat of Christ going, bring it on. We're eagerly waiting for our judgment because when we are judged, we get to look at Jesus who's sitting on the throne and say, I'm with you. Thank you. You've already paid the penalty for everything I've ever done. I am a lowly sinner. I, I, am, I, am, I, am, I am just like all others, all other human beings, other than I have received the free gift of your redemption, and I've been made clean. We are eagerly awaiting judgment day, because in that day, we will be redeemed. Our judge is our redeemer. What do we do with this? What, what, what do we do with this knowledge that our judge is our redeemer and, and judgment doesn't have to be a scary thing? Well, first, we must elevate Christ to his rightful place. Jesus is not co-equal among the other gods. There is one judge one Lord of all, one sacrifice for the sins of humanity, one who has been raised from the dead, one who is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, and one who will judge. Buddha, Muhammad, Moses will kneel before the judgment seat of Christ. All of them. All of them. All of them will kneel before the one who is raised from the dead. 
before the one who has been ordained by God to judge the living and the dead. That, that's not, that's not, that statement is not meant to be intolerant and mean-spirited towards other religions. That statement is a statement of truth and fact based in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his eternal lordship. We must elevate Christ in our minds. People must know that he will sit in judgment over them one day. That he will be the one to, to give them the opportunity to say, you stand condemned, but you are made clean. You are forgiven. He's the only one who can offer that. Only one who is both judge and redeemer. No one else can claim this. We must elevate Christ in our minds. We must elevate Christ in our hearts. We must not place him in the midst of other ideologies and things going on in this world. He must be first and foremost because he is unique in who he is, what he has done, and what he is going to do. God is not looking for a people unconvinced of the eternal lordship of Jesus Christ. He is looking for a people who are eagerly awaiting his return and trumpeting every time they can that Jesus saves, that Jesus redeems, that Jesus will judge, but Jesus will also forgive. We must elevate Jesus in our hearts and our minds. We must live like our reprieve's been granted. That's why we sing each and every Sunday morning. That's why we pray. That's why we give God our all. That's why we, we worship, because our reprieve has already been granted in eternity. I am a sinner. I have done wrong. I won't speak for you. I am a sinner. I have done wrong. I have wounded. I am worthy of punishment. But when I stand before God, he's going to forgive all of it and welcome me into my eternal home. What a blessing. What a blessing that the Son of God bore my sins to the cross. What a blessing that he stood in my place and paid my penalty. What a blessing. Why would I grow tired of singing his praises? Because eternity is so much wider, greater than the blip on the map that is my life today. The eternal weight of glory, the scripture says, that is waiting for me and waiting for you will we'll, we'll leave, we'll leave this life on the road behind for the grand road that is ahead. What a blessing that Jesus has purchased for each and every one of us. But today I encourage you to live like your reprieve's been granted. Don't be the one who has stood before the judgment seat of Christ, repented of all your sins, walked out of the courtroom and said, I will now return to everything that I have done in my previous life because I know that grace will cover me. One of the greatest musicals of all time, greatest stories, Victor Hugo, Les Miserables. Jean Valjean gets out of prison after years and years of hard labor. He gets into the household of a priest and he steals his silver. When he's brought back into account with that priest, the priest lets him off the hook. He says to him, oh, those I gave you freely, let me give you some more. This is what Christ has done for us. We have been brought to account, and he has given to us freely a great gift with which to restart our lives. Who would walk out of Christ's courtroom and go, I'm going to go back to that stuff? No. Almost every time in the New Testament when it speaks of judgment, it talks about how we should live now. 
because our reprieve has been granted. We've been set free. We've been made clean. So let's live clean. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you are sanctified, so live sanctified. You are set apart for service to God, so live set apart for service to God. Don't go back to that lifestyle of sin. Don't do what the world says is okay. Don't do, don't do the things that are crying out for justice. But live as if your reprieve's been granted. Jean Valjean turns his life around. He becomes a gift to the people of Paris. Your life can become a gift to others if you are willing to live as your reprieve has been granted. And when you live as though your reprieve has been granted, and when you, when you get your life in line with what Christ has designed you for, and when you worship him on a regular basis, elevating him to the place that he is meant to be, then you will eagerly await him. You'll be able to stand before God and say, I stand before you today, and I'm excited that every single person who I knew, I share Jesus with. Because I wanted them to stand before their Redeemer as well as their judge. You'll be able to say that, Jesus, I gave you my all because I knew that this day was coming. And I'm not perfect, and I'm not perfectly righteous, and I know I'm a sinner. But I gave you everything because I knew this day was coming. I am blessed to have known you, and I am blessed now to know you, and I will serve you into the ages I knew this day was coming, so I eagerly awaited and I gave you my all with the life that I had. Everything that I could give, I gave. I sacrificed what needed to be sacrificed. I killed in the flesh what needed to be killed in the flesh. I did things that were unconventional, that the world said was foolish. And I did that because I knew that my Redeemer and Judge lives. What is the measure of our resolve today knowing that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Where is it? Where is it? Because that day is not going to be a horrid day for us. It's going to be a blessed day for us. Allow it to be a blesseder day. Because you gave him your all. You did what was unconventional. You listened to the voice of his Holy Spirit, and you did right when he called. Because you lived as, as one who had been reprieved. That's who we are today. Let's give him our all. Let's worship him in fullness of joy. And let's tell other people that Jesus forgives sins and their judge is also their redeemer. Let's pray.